You'll please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 31. We're continuing the story of the life of Jacob. And as you're turning there, maybe you have been a part of a situation or you've seen situations where you've gone through it and you say these words. That could have been handled just a little bit better. Um, we come to a situation where it seems, according to the world standards, things could have happened just a little bit better between Jacob and Laban. But part of us needs to recognize that it's not always possible to handle things better when you're dealing with sin. And so we have a discrepancy here between Jacob and Laban. So we know as Christians we're told to work out our offenses in truth and in love. And it should be something that happens in such a way that both parties leave. Maybe um, maybe we're not perfectly um, satisfied with everything, but we leave knowing that we're united in Christ and that nothing can separate us. But with those who are in sin, it's not always possible to handle things so well. Now, one of the changes that does happen in this chapter is that we see God from the beginning to the end, which has not been the case in most of the chapters for the life of Jacob. So we're going to be breaking this up into multiple sections as we look at the different scenes, per se, of this uh, setup, because there are no, we know that there's some things that are going on that even the people are not aware of themselves. And so we're going to first see where God is directing Jacob to go home. He's protecting him both in foolishness with Rachel as well as the covenant relationship and then how God is a witness between him and Laban in the midst of the covenant relationship. So before we go to study the word, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, this is your word. It's your words to your people, and if you've written these words for us so that we might become closer in our relationship to you, so that we might be wiser in our understanding of your providence and your sovereignty. But Lord, you also teach us that it is you who fight for us, you who lead and guide us, and it's you who protect us. So Father, encourage us this morning But Lord, more than anything, that we do pray that you would transform us into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So the first scene that we see is God is directing, and I can't see anything. Can you see anything? We got nothing. We got nothing. So you're going to just have to pay attention. So we have God directing us in verses 1 through 16. And verses 1 through 3 sets the standard of this is a time to go for Jacob to go home. Now there's a few things that are going on. The first thing is that there's antagonism from the brother-in-laws. So they're starting to make claims that Jacob's overhearing of saying, hey, we're getting poor while Jacob's getting richer. And so they're getting a little ticked off that everything that they're supposed to receive is not happening. Secondly, you have Jacob's fallen out of favor with Laban. And he makes that statement. And so he knows that his relationship with Laban has changed considerably. And he's no longer the golden child. He's seen as someone who is out of favor. And so this begins him to think, at least physically... 
Maybe it's time for me to pick up and go. But there is another situation, and I guess we're back on, where we have God's calling. For he reveals himself in a dream to Jacob. And our understanding should be that this is a guidance. In essence, it's a a gracious shove. Because remember, he told 20 years ago, Jacob, I'm going to bring you home. And he thought when he left, he was coming home quickly. Now it's 20 years later. And God says, it's time to go home. Now there has to be a response to this. Because now that Jacob's been told to go home, will he obey? Now, a couple of side notes here. One, some people sometimes talk to me about, I wish God talked to us in dreams still. I think you don't want that. And the reason why you don't want that is because if you think about it, um, would we start to second guess God's dreams? God is very clear by giving us his word. That's why he tells us to read his word, to make his word go deep into our lives. He's very clear about what he wants from us and expects from us. And so it's far better for us to read his word, but we need to also apply it. We need to obey it. And so the dream comes to Jacob and he begins to obey it. And it's Proverbs 3, 5, 6. Remember these words that you've been taught and have sung many times? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he, God, will make your path straight. So we have Jacob finally getting the message of maybe it's time to go home. Well, the next thing he does in verses 4 through 16 is he begins to disciple his family, which is the right thing to do. So he begins to talk about God's providence to his wives and his extended family. Now, I want you to understand, this is probably a really, really hard situation. Because these women and the children that he have, this is the only place they have ever known. And any of you who've ever had to take a daughter away from their parents, or someone leave the extended family, you were not seen as the nice person. You are shaking things up. Why are you taking? Why are you going so far away? And so it's that understanding that's going on here. So the daughters are there. The grandchildren are there. And he's having to begin to teach them that this is the right thing to do, to leave everything they've ever known and gone to a place where they'll know no one except their family. Now, he does this by teaching them about God's providence by looking at three situations where Laban, he does a comparison. He says, hey, your father Laban did this, but here's how God, the God I serve, took care of us. And so he makes this comparison in regards to God's providence. And as he's doing this, he's saying, even in the midst of a dream, I had this of God's provision and his faithfulness to us. He's taken the the wealth of your father and he's given it to me. And so I want you, wives and, and sons, to understand how God has protected us, how God loves us, how God has created all these situations. And so as he teaches them in the midst of that, the truth of the situation comes forth for the daughters. Because how do they respond in the scripture? They say, hey, we're going to follow wherever you go. And the relationship that they have with their father has been destroyed. 
Now, there's a reason why even in modern uh, weddings, and it should still be there, but more and more weddings are taking this out, where the father stands between the the uh, fiancé, the husband-to-be, and his daughter. There's a reason for that. And the reason is that God put man into the place of saying, I'm going to be in this covenant relationship with my daughter, and I'm not going to release her until this man promises before God. And that's why they're looking forward. They're not looking at each other. These aren't vows to each other at this point. They're looking forward at the person who's, who's over top of the service, ultimately Christ through God. So they look at him and they make a promise. They make a vow. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always provide for you. And they do it before God and all the witnesses. And only then does the father relinquish his covenant responsibility for his daughter to that man. Now, this is not going on with Laban and his daughters. The truth of the situation is they are able to say, we are strangers to our fathers. Worse than that, not only are we strangers to him, not only is he not taking care of us, he sold us out. He should have been providing a dowry for us. He should have been providing for our future. But what he does is he actually sells them to Jacob. You know what you're worth, daughter? You're worth seven years of labor to me. And so they're ready to go. We're not going to be staying here with a father to where we're treated like strangers and foreigners. We're going with you to worship your God. And so the question for us is, are we listening to God's leading through his word? Are we obeying it? Are we applying it to our lives? And are we living it out? Are we discipling those that God has given to us? Because it's never too late. Disciple in the truth of God through his word to your children and your children's children and your children's children's children. Never, never stop teaching the truths of the scripture. So that's the first scene that we pick up between Jacob and his family. It now switches to where God starts to protect them. And this is the verses that David read for us earlier. And so the first scene is there's three little minor scenes that go on. And the first one is God protects the foolish. Well, how do we see that? Well, first we have Jacob trying to use the element of surprise. So Jacob is afraid, and we know that because that's what he says in the scripture. I was afraid of you. I was afraid that if I came and talked to you, you were to take my family away from me. You were going to change what was going to happen again. You've already done it 10 times. What was going to stop you from another time? So I knew you were going to shear the sheep. So I picked up my family and I left. And remember, he only comes with a, with, um, a staff. He leaves with four wives at this point, 11 boys, one daughter. He has multiple sheep and goats. He has donkeys. He has maidservants, men servants. He has all of this, and he's got to get this to go a distance of about 550 miles. So he's starting this trek to get all those people across the land. 
And so he tries to use trickery. He's using the element of surprise. Let's not tell your father. Let's get up and start the journey. That's what he does. Well, as they're packing everything up, why Laban is off shearing the sheep, which is, we know, a three days journey from where he's at. Rachel goes in and steals the gods. Now, if you don't look at that and go, this is weird, then something's wrong with you. This is weird. But we have to ask the question, why did Moses record this for us? Now, part of it is that people have given answers of saying, it's Rachel, she's had a hard time having children's, family gods are usually fertility gods, so maybe she wanted to make sure that she was going to have another child. So she steals the family gods. A second thing that people put out there is it's a proof of inheritance. So how would you go and claim the lands and the things of your father? Well, you have the family gods. They would have been yours. And so if you could produce the family gods, then you can show, hey, this is mine. So was she preparing for herself to receive an inheritance even though her dad gave it away? We don't know. Was she trying to take away the power of her father? I know what I'll do. I'll steal my dad's gods and then he can't ask his gods to do anything. We're not told, but we will see later on that God uses this, and I think we can apply it faithfully later in the scripture. So he's leaving with Ellen a surprise. There's a stealing of the gods, but then once Laban finds out, he gets his kinsmen. Okay, and that's how you created your thug army. So who are all the people that owe their lives to me and everybody who's related to me? And we're going out, and it's probably just the men, and so they're they're going a pretty good clip. And they catch up. And so now they are they're in the same land and they find themselves um, overtaking them. But what happens at this moment? God comes to Laban. In the midst of a dream, and he says this, don't speak anything good or bad to Jacob. I'm warning you. Don't speak anything good or bad to Jacob. Well, of course, Laban hears that and he wants to apply the word of God to the situation, right? No. So the first thing is we see how he protects Jacob and his family it's, there's these accusations that come from Laban. Now, he's just been told in a dream from God, don't say anything good and don't say anything bad. But here he comes with these accusations. And the first thing that he says um, to Jacob is he confronts him with this. You've driven my daughters away like captives. So he's saying to Jacob, hey, you have pointed a sword at my daughters and my grandkids. They didn't want to leave their homeland. They didn't want to leave me, their father. And so you've taken them against their will and you've brought them out here. But I'm sure there's probably some uh, glances that are going to Laban. There's maybe even some words that the grandkids and the daughters are saying and the servants are saying, no, that's not it. We gladly left. We don't owe anything to you. 
So, so then he becomes an even greater hypocrite. He says, well, why did you leave in secret? Because if you would have come to me, I would have given you this huge party. And I would have given you party favors and you were left with more than you already have. But you know what you've done to me? You've, you've taken away the privilege of me hugging my daughters and loving on them and giving my grandkids their kisses and giving you blessings. You're just a terrible son-in-law. Now again, none of the family knows that that is true. They all know that's hypocrisy. But then he makes a statement to him and he says, do you not understand that I have the power to harm you? Now God told him, don't say anything good and don't say anything bad. (laughs) And Laban makes a statement, I've got the power to destroy you, but he does say some truth except for your God coming and speaking to me. So he's letting Jacob know. Now, do you think that's encouraging to Jacob to hear from his father-in-law, a pagan who has these false gods that he follows after, to hear that the true God went and spoke to his father-in-law and said, I'm going to protect you through the person that could destroy him? Very encouraging. And then he gets to the point that I think really does kind of tick off Jacob a little bit, where he says, in in, in the midst of all of this, why did you steal my gods? I mean, it's one thing for you to take my kids, my grandkids. I mean, that's that's bad, but take my gods? I mean, that's, that's a low blow, Jacob. So he says all this stuff in these accusations against Jacob, and then... Jacob allows him to search. Now again, there is a a point here where we are told Jacob doesn't know that the stolen goods are there. He didn't know Rachel took them. We know, Rachel knows, but it seems like nobody else knows. And so he says, if you find anything, if you find your household gods, kill them. Kill whoever stole them. And so Laban proceeds to search the tents. And he doesn't find anything. And he doesn't find anything. And then he gets to Rachel's tent. He doesn't find anything in the tent, but he comes out to Rachel. Now, is Rachel being shrewd? Is it God protecting Rachel at this point to have her being in that special time of the month? To where she can't get up? Here's where I want the application of what Moses is trying to teach us. Moses says to us in this passage that the gods, little g, the gods of Laban, are like filthy rags. They're worthless. They can do nothing for Laban. They have no power. And yet it's what Laban has trusted, and he can't even have them kind of yell out from underneath her, we're down here! Nothing. Now, I want you to apply this, Deuteronomy 4, 28. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Write this part of the, write this passage down. Isaiah 
chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. And I know it's a long passage. And he says, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, nor do they put anything to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all ascend them, let them stand forth, for they shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. And he goes on to say, and he says, all you're doing is taking common things and creating them to be gods. How stupid is that? And that's what he's telling to us. Now, it's easy for us to look and go, Laban, that was stupid, man. You had wooden gods. Of course, they're not going to do anything for you. These are things that can be put into your pocket and controlled. What else do we put in our pocket that we think can control us? What do we look to to answer our problems? Money, credit cards, our license, concealed carry permits, whatever it might be. See, we're not so far-fetched from the idols of Laban. And God's telling to us, nothing man creates can take care of you. Your money's not going to cry out in the midst of injustice. If someone comes and steals your money, it's not going to cry out and go, Whoa, whoa, I'm not yours. It's worthless. And it goes to whoever steals. So it's a warning to us as well as to them of the foolery, the folly of idolatry. So we go through the midst of this. And so there's the accusations. He's done his search. And and then Jacob, this is the, the longest recorded speech so far in the scripture from Jacob. And he comes in. And there's, we've seen, and hopefully you've seen this in the passages we've gone through, God has attacked him in every area that he failed in back home. He stole birthrights. He lied. So he gets to the point where there's this change of character where he has become a man where he's not hypocritical anymore. He tells the truth. And he says, and he goes into this thing, he says, Laban, I have never taken advantage of you. Never. Even when it was rightfully my opportunity, because where it says that there were animals that were killed, what a a hired servant was supposed to do was take it to the owner and say, hey, a bear came and mauled this sheep. Here it is. I didn't do it. Sorry. Here you go. Here's your lamb back. He says he took the cost upon himself. If anything was stolen by day or night, and you're talking about flocks and people coming in and taking specific sheep away or some of that, and he says, all you have to do is go back and tell, you just have to be honest, go back and tell the owner, hey, some sheep were stolen last night, it wasn't me, it wasn't the other people, just need to let you know you had a loss last night, write it off. He doesn't do that. He says, everything that went wrong for your flocks, I paid for And not only that, you changed my wages ten times. 
You're the one who's been the hypocrite. You're the one that has attacked me. And he gets to the point where he says, if it wasn't for my God, and I want you, this is the big thing. If it wasn't for my God protecting me, you would have taken it all away. Now again, you look at a situation, you go, Jacob had it pretty rough for 20 years. We can look at our situation and go, this isn't fair. I I should be having more money. I should have never lost my job. I should have never had to go through the sickness. I should have never had to go through this. I should have, I should have, I should have, I should. God is never away from you. And he doesn't allow anything to happen to you that he's not in total control of. And that should encourage us. What ultimately Jacob is able to say to Laban is, God rebuked you last night. You are the one God rebuked, not me. So it's these truths that God is there for us. And so we have these two major scenes. He's left with his children. He's had the confrontation with Laban. But then we get to the place where... God becomes a witness between them. Because I want you to see the switch here in verses 43 through the end of the chapter. Because in the midst of this godless fear that we have with Laban, listen, even after hearing all of that from Jacob, even being told he was rebuked by God, how does Laban respond? Well, they're my daughters. It's my property. It's my grandkids. Everything that you've taken from me, it's all mine. Now, there's also a change here, and we see it in the regards to the covenant, is now Laban is fearful of Jacob. So there's a switch. Jacob has always been fearful of Laban. Now Laban, because of the situation that he's just gone through, and now that he sees that he is not no longer someone over top of Jacob, but now he is a co-equal. Now he sees, I'm fearful of this man. And so what he does is he wants to have this thing to happen where he establishes this covenant to protect himself from Jacob. And so it's also said in this point, and I want us to see um, quickly here, that this is a man who knows. Listen, Laban knew he was blessed by God through Jacob. He knows it. He also had an encounter with the living God. He had a dream and he was talked to by God. He knows that his household gods have no power. But he has no relationship with the living God. Now, this is sad because I I want us to kind of put this in perspective for us. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. 
Now, this scares me. <laughs> what scares me worse, worse is Matthew 7. And I want you to write it down because I want you to look back at it at some point. But Matthew 7, and I want to put it in the correct context. So Matthew's talking about the distinction between the two things going on. So it's the wide and narrow gate. It's the two teachers, the false teacher and the wise teacher. It's the, the person who uh, cries out, Lord, Lord, but doesn't live for him. And then the, um, the foundation. Okay? So I want you to give you that context. And so when you're dealing with the two gates, you're describing apathy. When you're talking about the two teachers, you're describing deceit. When we get to the passage of Matthew 7, it's starting at verse 20, where it says, Many will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? Now, I want that to be a warning to us. Because they have the right doctrine. They even performed miracles. They even believe their deception. So people can be sitting in this room for 20 plus years, hearing the word preached day in and day out. That you can be reading your scripture. You can be out there doing things in God's name. You can be going doing things. And this is part of why I struggle with people who have to go and give hours for community service. Because they're not giving community service. They're being told to give community service. And so there are people who can do all these things about God, do all these things for God, and never know Him. And never be known by Him. That's a warning to us. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Not do you know about Him. Not can you tell me facts about Him. Not can you do things for Him or for the church or out of guilt or whatever. Do you know Him by name? Do you love to spend time with Him? Do you pray with Him? Are you ministered to by Him? Because that's when we'll know that he's our Lord. And so Laban goes through this whole situation and he doesn't know God, even after your experience. And so he gives us a warning in Laban, but then he also gives to us how he's taught Jacob. And think of how far Jacob has come deceitful, conniving, lying to his own father to get a blessing from God who he doesn't even really believe in, to have an experience with God at Bethel, to now learning that it is God who has kept him and protect him, and he's going home in his covenant relationship. See, God becomes his witness. Now, I want you to see this from two perspectives. One, God sees everything. So when they go into this covenant, and again, it's called the cutting of the covenant. And for those who don't know, when you entered into a covenant relationship, you cut animal pieces in half, and you put them on each side and let the blood run to the middle. And then both parties walk through the blood, and they said, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, then I should be cut in half. I should be killed. And so this is what he does with Laban. He enters into this covenant relationship with him. 
But they set up stones, and the stones, it's crazy here because they said, hey, one stone for Jacob is, God is my witness. But how many witnesses does it take? Two. So Laban gives the God of Nahor. Well, we'll throw him in. This un, we only need God to be the one witness, but hey, we'll throw in this God who doesn't mean anything. But these rocks, these gods will be the witnesses. And listen, the witness, the covenant sign is for us. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. The sign's for us. It's to remind us of the truth. It's to remind us to look forward to the dinner. And so he makes this witness that they cut this covenant to remind what? That God is faithful to Jacob. Not Laban. God is the one who is faithful. And it is God who enters the covenant for us. Remember, it's by his blood that the covenant is appealed and taken care of. That's why we can stand in his presence now. Because Jesus shed his blood for you and me. And as he sheds his blood, he allows us and starts to transform us so that when we have the fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, self-control. You don't get to pick and choose which ones you like of those. Well, I want to be loving this week, but I'm not going to be joyful. You can't do it. If we know Christ and if we're growing in him, we will have the fruit of the Spirit apparent. Will it be perfect? No. But our desire will be, how do we love other people? How do we we express joy? How How do we control ourselves? How do we have patience with one another? How do we show kindness to one another? Because he's always transforming us to look more like Jesus. And then what does Jesus say to us in regards to that? And I thought I had it up there. And he said to all, this is Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's how we get the situation right. If we deny ourselves, we take up our cross and then we follow Christ no matter where he goes, no matter the situations we find ourselves, no matter how hard it is, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. And he's given his life as a ransom for us so that we, we might inherit everything that he promised. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the truths of your word. Lord, I thank you that you give us, again, real situations with real people who are going through real trials and tribulations, people who steal false gods, people who are unaware of the things that they promise, people who think they're doing right things. But, Father, I thank you that you allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us and apply your word to our lives. And Father, I pray that we would get it like Jacob got it. That even in the midst of all hardships that this world can bring, 
my God. My God is faithful and he's just. He forgives all my sins. He brings revenge upon those who have done me wrong. But more than anything, he's the father who welcomes me home. So, Father, I pray that this morning that no one would leave this room or leave their homes not knowing the truth of the gospel message. That Jesus Christ gave up everything. He humbled himself and become a man. He lived a perfect life we could never live to give us a righteousness we could never earn so that we might be called the sons and daughters of the king. Father, thank you for the greatest gift that's ever been given. May we never take it for granted. For we give you all praise and glory in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.